0: thank you for joining us on the Men podcast where you'll get motivation
1: for your journey sharing stories from men of color tips and advice for navigating the field of medicine and how to bounce back from adversity as well as various topics and special guests What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Minority Males and Medicine podcast. It's your boy, Akeem. It's 2021. Happy
0: New Year. Happy New Year, everyone. It's Cameron here. I'm excited for 2021 and everything, hopefully, that we have in store.
1: So far, this year has been off to, you know, a pretty interesting start. Um, A lot of new change approaching upon us. um, Normal season horizon. Um, We even seen Bernie break the Internet. (laughs) I seen that meme flying all around. He might even end up on his podcast. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that would be a doozy. But uh, yeah, you know, hopefully the, in 2021, uh, you know, we get back to some normalcy, like you said, uh, turn the page, some more positivity. Um, and definitely with the podcast, we have some great guests lined up. Um, it's going to be exciting and, and we hope you all are going to enjoy it. Most definitely. We've been
1: recording, y'all. We've been recording. We got a couple podcasts tucked and it's going to be a lot of gems being dropped from medical students sharing their perspectives. A lot of different people that have interesting backgrounds, not in just medicine, and so it's going to be really good.
0: And that actually brings us to our guest for today. His name is Najib Jai. We met Najib back when we did our S and program at Duke. Uh, Najib actually graduated from Duke University with. Uh, Degree in chemistry, took a gap year and then went on to Pritzker School of Medicine at the University of Chicago, where he's getting his MD. But also, Najib is getting his MBA from Booth School of Business, also at the University of Chicago. Um, and he has a very interesting story because after he graduates this upcoming spring, uh, Najib is not going to residency like most medical students do when they graduate. Instead, Najib is going for to work for a healthcare company, Oak Street Health, where he will be utilizing his MD and MBA to make some change in the healthcare field. As someone who has a strong
1: interest in business and always trying to figure out ways to merge them, it was just really interesting just to hear him talk. Like I've, I've always had an interest in business and hearing him, how he talked about how he learned certain skills in business school and being able to mesh it with the medical school curriculum and how he's going to use it later on for his career path was definitely eye-opening. So I think if you have that strong interest, this podcast is for you. He definitely dropped a couple of gems about the med school life.
0: Then also sharing that unique side about business. Yeah, we talked about a few different topics in this podcast. It was a great conversation. We learned so much, and I hope you all enjoy. What's up, Najib? Good to see you, man. Long time to see.
2: Yeah, what's going on, Cameron? How you doing, man?
0: (laughs) Good, good, good to see you. It's really been a long
1: time. It's really been 2015, the summer. I
2: remember
1: exactly. I remember when you were our T A, you were a TA for physics, and you was the RA, which is a resident assistant at the dorm that we stayed at, at Duke during SMDEP. That was such a great time. And I remember there was this one particular time we had this class, this um, English professional writing class. We had a professor. She was really intense. Her name was Shirley. I don't know if you remember <laughs> Yeah, I remember Shirley. <laughs> it was this particular moment that I can remember so vividly. She was like, everyone, take out a blank white sheet of paper. And just, she just said, who are you? Who are you? and write this down and write this answer out. And then we had to present <laughs> it to the class. And so today, Najib, I'm going to ask you, who are you? <laughs> tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us, tell our listeners your background, your family origin story, your location, where you grew up, all that.
2: Let's get to it. Yeah, that. no, it's, uh, it's a good question and uh, an, an insightful one at that. Um, so, you know, I'm Najib, uh, originally from North Carolina, uh, but my family is sort of based overseas. So mom's from Haiti dad's from Morocco. Um, And, you know, I think both of those influences were pretty instrumental in sort of my, I guess, duality of experience and identity growing up. Um, And then add to that before college, I went to seven different schools. So moved around all throughout the state of North Carolina, super helpful, because I think every environment was drastically different from the other. So some were predominantly black, some were predominantly white, and you know, everything in between. Um, which was great because I think by the time I sort of transitioned to college and then to medical school, it was easy for me to relate to a lot of people from different backgrounds. Um, so that's I think me from a personal individual level. Uh, and then professionally, if you will, I'm in my fifth and final year of an MD MBA program at the University of Chicago. Um, bit different than your sort of prototypical medical student in that uh, I started the program with intentions of not practicing medicine uh, and instead Mm -hmm. going into sort of medical business. I don't like that word business because I don't think it's uh, specific enough. It means a lot of things, but nonetheless, that's sort of where my journey is going right now. Nice. And it definitely seems like over the years that I remember when I first
1: met you, you mentioned that you were going to do the MBA thing and you stuck with it. And it's really great to see how far along you came. And it's definitely been inspiring as someone who's been interested in pursuing an MBA as well. So we're going to dabble a little bit more into that throughout this interview. Absolutely. Thank you. Sounds good.
0: So uh, what kind of got you interested? You spoke a little bit about your upbringing. Uh, What what got you interested in pursuing medicine in general?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, as a brief backstory, the plan was not always to go to medical school and not practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, I actually wanted to be a neurosurgeon for the majority of my life. Uh, You know, I was a, a little kid and... Uh, my my whole goal was either you know be a professional basketball player or <laughs> practice medicine. Uh, not too uncommon in the black community. Uh, and you know as I as I aged, my my goal sort of refined more. And ultimately, what what motivated me on the path of medicine was I recognized that people that I saw in my life that were happiest were those that could provide something to someone else. Um, and I felt that too. You know, my my mom was always a, an incredibly selfless person. She just retired from teaching. Um, and, you know, she, she's multilingual. So she speaks French, Creole, Spanish. And growing up, she would always take care of a lot of the uh, Mexican immigrants that were in North Carolina, because very mm. few people could translate for them. So I grew up in that environment of having somebody that I, you know, respected and cared about, really focused on taking care of other people. And very early on, that was something that was important to me. So, you know, had this intention about practicing neurosurgery, I figured, you know, the brain's kind of the most special aspect of a person, I mean, in essence is a person, and we really don't understand it. So I figured what better way to help people than help them preserve this, you know, special organ that we really don't comprehend all that well. Um, so went to Duke under that premise, you know, that was my goal. Prior to starting at Duke, I'd never taken a class in chemistry, calculus, or physics. Uh, and my degrees in chemistry. So I had to take all those courses, um, which was a good experience and certainly required me to be very motivated, but it also didn't really allow for a lot of career exploration. Mm. Uh, And without going into too much detail, unprompted, um, part of what allowed me to shift into the path I'm in now was really my gap year before starting medical school, where I could explore more about what options existed out there. Uh, and finally landed not exactly on the path that I'm on specifically now, but I would say in the same zip code of the area that I find myself in today.
0: Mm. Wow,
2: it's really interesting.
0: I was going to say when you when you said you uh, you were interested in being a professional basketball player, I have seen the video uh, on YouTube of you playing one on one with Austin Rivers. So I, I don't know that the that. <laughs> the basketball <laughs> may have may have worked out for you if you would have stuck yeah, with I,
2: it. I, I might have given up too soon, man. Might have been too much, too
0: much <laughs> about it. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, you mentioned uh, at Duke, you were a pre-medical student. Um, and Duke is obviously, you know, it's a challenging academic uh, environment. Um, so what uh, challenges did you face, um, if any, uh, throughout your time at Duke, uh, whether it be with classes or moving on to the MCAT? Um, and how did you overcome those challenges as you faced them?
2: Yeah, man. I mean, one thing I learned from Duke was that adversity is a constant. Uh, and that, that's certain that it's... It's almost borderline cliche to say that, but it, it is just so functionally true. So I'll tell you about my first test that I ever took in college. Um, it was my freshman year chemistry course. And mind you, prior to starting at Duke, you know, I had done incredibly well throughout school. I, I didn't really take school seriously until sophomore year of high school, but <laughs> from then onward, did very well, right? So I was accustomed to getting high scores. And I was in this chemistry class, You know, took my first exam, Thought I crushed it, felt really good about it. And uh, show up to class the next week and the professors, you know, telling us where to pick up our exams. And I picked mine up and I got a 60. It's not a curved. This is a flat out objective, plain 60%. Uh, and I just remember my stomach just dropped. Um, I, I couldn't believe it. And so what I did was, I did a lot of things, but one of the things that I did was I actually taped that exam onto my desk. in Motivation. So whenever I left my room or whenever I came into my room, I had to look at that exam. Uh, and so the second, uh, the second exam that I took, I got an 81 on it. Again, it's not curved, just an 81. Uh, third exam, I got a 92. And so I met with my professor and I said, "All right." She's like, uh, "Look, you know, you've, you've been doing incredibly well. You're improving. You know, all you need is an A minus in the final. You get an A minus in the class." Mm. Then I, uh, what, what do I need to get an A in this class? <laughs> And, uh, and she's like, well, you need a 98 on the final. And I got exactly a 98 on that final. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's actually why I do. decided to major in chemistry. Uh, because it was hard, man. Because I had to work really mm. hard at it. But the feeling I got when I was successful, when I was able to overcome that struggle of it being hard, uh, was, I mean, nothing short of euphoric. I mean, it was, there was nothing quite like that. Um, and I wanted my entire college experience to be a series of struggles, but with the hope that what followed those struggles was ultimately some sort of success. Mm. Um, and yeah, so, you know, I think that illustrates what was a consistent experience throughout college. Now, fortunately I didn't, I didn't bomb every first exam that I took after (laughs) that. Um, but you know, there were certainly other instances where, you know, I, I had my fair share of struggles, you know, physics was not easy, uh, calculus, you know, took time, like I, what it meant for me was I learned very early on, that I had to do things a lot differently than those around me, mm-hmm. right? So if that meant that I had to study, you know, 10 hours more than the person next to me to get the same score, or if that meant that I had to seek out, you know, office hours whenever they were available, that's what I did. Uh, and that's what I continue to do. Um, so yeah, adversity was a constant. But I think along with that, you sort of learn how to have a work ethic to overcome it. Yeah,
0: absolutely. That really resume, resonates with me as well, because, um, you know, college is not easy. Being a pre-med is not easy, uh, but it definitely feels good when you put in a lot of work and, um, you know, you, you reach that point where you're satisfied with the, the results. So for sure.
1: Ajib, you mentioned um, about your during your gap year, you had an experience where it led you more down the path of pursuing your MBA. So can you talk a little bit more about why you actually pursued a gap year and exactly what happened during that transformative year for you?
2: Yeah, no, two great questions. So the first one about why I took the gap year uh, really comes down to my pre-major advisor at Duke. So at Duke, you're not allowed to declare a major until your sophomore spring. And you get randomly assigned uh, some, you know, some person, either a professor or faculty, whatever, that will serve as your pre-major advisor. and. If there's one thing that is pretty consistent throughout my story, if I could define, if I could define my story by two words, I would say fortune and serendipity. So mm. this first thing was very serendipitous. So my pre-major advisor was the dean of admissions for Duke Med, Dr. Brenda Armstrong, who you mm. both knew. Absolutely. Uh, Make her soul rest so, in peace. Uh, yeah, rest in peace. Amazing, amazing woman. Very much a mother figure to me throughout uh, college and onward. Um, but my first week of school, she was my pre-major advisor. So for those who don't know Dr. Brenda Armstrong, she was the, a part of the first class of Black students to integrate Duke undergrad. She was the first uh, Black woman pediatric cardiologist in the country. Uh, powerful woman, if you heard her speak, you would listen and she stood all of five feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> very small but very impactful. And so this first week in college when I was talking to her, you know, I'm sharing my aspirations. she's like, oh, that's great, wonderful. Neurosurgery, you're not gonna have a job until you're 40. Take at least a year just to have a job. That's all right, yeah, like I, I like that idea. So that that was primarily it. Um, it was the fact that I knew between residency, fellowship, medical school, I wouldn't have the nine-to-five experience until I was much older, and I valued that. So from the beginning of freshman year, I always knew I was going to take a gap year. Um, And, you know, I think as I went throughout that process, I added more reasons to it as to why it made sense for me, but I think that was sort of the genesis of it. Um, And to the second question about why I was transformative, a lot happened that year, but I think the way I would describe it best is you know, in college, like I said, I had never taken calculus, chemistry or physics, right? So I had a lot of fun in college, but from an academic career perspective, it was a very focused time at a necessity. There wasn't a yeah. lot of wiggle room because if I introduced that, that could very easily lead to failure and not right. reaching my goal, right? But in this gap year, I was just applying to medical school. I, had, I, w- I worked as a research chemist, um, I had a lot of time. I had a lot more time than I had ever had in the past four years. And so through that, again, very serendipitously, through a, uh, through a friend, a mutual friend, I met someone at Fuqua, that's uh, Duke's Business School. And he was uh, somebody going into impact investing. So I asked him, you know, what, what is impact investing? What do you do? What's your day-to-day? And he breaks it down. He's like, look, you know, I get to be highly analytical. I get to be a, an interpersonal person, right? So I get to leverage my ability to talk to people and build relationships and at the end of the day, what results from my work is something that is bettering society and people in general. I said, wait, 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 that's a job? Like, I didn't know that I could combine being interpersonal, talking to people, uh, solving, wanting to be analytical and solving problems, and all of that combined into helping people, which I said before, was always my, my, my leading star, if you will, right? But for me it was it was an interesting experience because what i learned from that year was not that i wanted to be an impact investor what i learned from that year is that my perception of what careers were available to me was much smaller than what it actually was so you guys know it you you're you're a young black kid you grow up in the community and you show any sort of promise they tell you to be a doctor a lawyer or maybe an engineer right we don't really know what business is in our community it's sort of a black box of ambiguity And what I began to realize that year was that it, business, quote unquote, aligns so much better with what I wanted to accomplish through my life Mm -hmm. and practicing as a neurosurgeon. And to put that in more specific words, my long-term goal has been consistent. Whether I wanted to practice neurosurgery or what I'm doing now, my goal is still the same. And that is to have a historically significant impact on healthcare that improves the lives of others. Same thing. I thought neurosurgery was the vehicle to that. In that gap year, I realized that my skills, my talents, and my abilities were better aligned with something more in the medical business space. Mm-hmm. I was in a unique spot where I was already getting accepted in medical schools. I My resume was built for medical school. So I decided with the help of mentors around me that I would go on, go get my MD, but find a program where I could get a really good MBA, and then figure out where across this ambiguous box of business i fit in best um and that's what i've done you know went to uc uh worked at a startup for two years um worked within the healthcare private equity space which is just investing in healthcare companies for about two years and then now uh just recently signed a job offer full-time for next year uh, awesome. with oak street health so yeah it's been uh it's been a journey
1: <laughs> congrats <laughs> that's on the
2: answer to that question but it's a it's a it's a it's a loaded question
1: no that was nice thank you thank you on that and you see I asked about your transformative year and it was definitely transformative everything you just said masterful
2: I appreciate it man yeah it's uh again this is where the um the fortune part comes in I've I've been wildly fortunate man uh between the mentors that have come into my life the mentees that have come into my life um it in some ways doesn't make a whole lot of sense but I'm incredibly grateful for the fortune
0: so focusing in a little bit on um, kind of the, the shift or transition from your gap year into medical school at, at Prisker at the University of Chicago School of Medicine, um, what was that like, that transition from the gap year into medical school, particularly those first three years before you even started your MBA um, with the, two, the preclinical years and then obviously the clinical year?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, all the descriptions that people give you and all the stories and all the shadowing ultimately don't do justice to what <laughs> being a medical student really is. Um, I found it to be one of the hardest things about talking to pre-meds because, excuse me, at the end of the day, you, you can't share an experience. You can only experience it, right? And so that transition to first year, man, it was, it was tough. It was tough. The way Pritzker's mm-hmm. curriculum is set up, your first 11 weeks are anatomy, and I mean, they plainly tell you that it, it, it essentially is a hazing experience um, because man, I have never, I, it, it was just a lot of work, man. It was a lot of work. <laughs> and, you know, I think in any other point in my life before those three years and after those three years, uh, the information I needed to know was finite, right? Medical information never feels finite. right? There is so much you need to know or so much you can know at any particular time and i think one of the biggest transitions going into your first year is one recognizing that that there's just way too much for any one person to know and then two getting comfortable with it understanding what is quote unquote high yield like what are the most important things to know like how do you prioritize and triage and i think the beauty of that in doing that your preclinical years is that it directly that process directly translates to clinical medicine, mm. where you're always faced with scenarios where you have to triage. You have to think about what are, my, what are my high yield priorities? What am I going to do first for the five patients that I have? What am I going to do first for this one patient that I have when there are five things that I could do for them? Um, and so it, in many ways, I think trains you from day one, how to think like a doctor. And that is a painful training process to begin with. <laughs> but it gets better. It gets better. And I think that's something that a lot of the older medical students said to me when I was a first year. And I often say to, you know, medical students that are years below me is that it does get better. You, you do learn more. You do grow a foundation upon which you can base your working knowledge. And while you will never reach a point where you know everything and any doctor that tells you that is lying to you, um, (laughs) you do get to a point where you know enough to understand what you know, then understand where to find what you don't know. Mm. And, and that that certainly gets comfortable. Um, and the last thing I'll say, as far as the transition is concerned, is I thought I worked hard in undergrad, but nothing will ever compare to the amount of work I had to do for step one. And I know both of y'all are preparing for step one. <laughs> <laughs> but when I tell y'all, and mind you, you know, I'm, I, I'm not applying to residency. So my step one score wasn't material. It doesn't matter. No one's ever going to see it. None of my employers that I interviewed for ever asked about it. Mm. But if I was going to, I decided when I was going to go to medical school that I was really going to get the most out of medical school. Mm. And so I treated step one, like I was trying to go to neurosurgery and man, like I have never worked that hard in my life. And I don't think I've worked that hard since that point. Um, it was, it was hard to sustain, but you know, you learn from that. And I think that that shows you, just how hard you can go. And that was a powerful experience in them. So well.
0: Wow. Yeah, I have that to look forward to in a little bit. So <laughs> That's I'll
2: scary, keep that in it'll mind. Be fine. It'll
0: be
1: fine. <laughs> I like how you mentioned that you you focused on the high yield content and try to, you know, triage that. Um, I wanted to see if you could elaborate a little bit more on your study techniques that you used and during your first pre-clinical years. Um, specifically, did you jump into Anki? I know a lot of medical students are using Anki. Did you dabble in that? How did that work for you?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think the beginning, call it year one of medical school, was a lot of trial and error. And what I appreciated about Pritzker, both both from the faculty and sort of like upperclassmen perspective, is that trial and error process was encouraged. So we were encouraged to try different ways of studying, right? Like, you know, are you a big time lecture goer? Are you a person who will listen to recordings at two times speed? Turns out I was the latter. I stopped going to lecture. I listened to all the recordings for lecture. I, you know, would take notes on PowerPoints, really just trying to play. I I would make summary sheets and think, okay, like what are the high yield stuff and what do I absolutely need to know in terms of memorizing things? Um, That was my first year. A lot of trial and error, really just playing with almost anything and trying to figure out what made sense. Hmm. Second year, I think I had learned a lot about how to learn medicine because it is a different learning experience than chemistry, physics, calc, or any of that other stuff you take in college. Uh, And then I did use Anki. Uh, I used Anki because I believed a lot in spaced repetition Mm -hmm. because what you end up realizing is that the concepts in medicine are finite. There are certain fundamental concepts and, you know, well, I could never put a number on them. That does feel finite, how the body works. And, you know, you learn about the physiology and the pathophysiology and those things follow certain... Like logical patterns. But then there's just a lot of stuff you need to know. And there is no conceptual backing to it. Like there are just these viruses and bacteria that you need to know. There are these yeah. uh, five diseases that impact the heart that you need to know, the six different things about it. And so I found that space repetition was very helpful. As I mastered the concepts, I had all of the, you know, little bit, little bitty de- details, if you will, uh, that came from Anki. So Anki was a lot of my second year. It was a lot of my step prep. I don't think it's required. I knew friends that didn't do Anki and they did just as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in my third year, I did away with Anki, frankly, because Anki was the bane of my existence.
1: Anki- <laughs> I was going <laughs> to ask you, how was the transition? Because I know a lot of people were scared when they first see it, Just like, what? I don't know how to use it.
2: Man, Anki, so I'll tell you, man. So the first, the first time I tried using Anki, I tried to make my own cards. And I tried to make my own cards from like class material. So like mm. the process of making the cards. First off, my cards were trash. They were <laughs> awful cards. Like space repetition is a science. Like you have to know just enough. To, like just how much should you put on a card? Like how to make it actually effectual? So that was trash and painful. Took forever. Then I, you know, I started taking some of the uh, some of the decks and trying to remember the online ones. There was Zanki, Zanki On King. Yeah, that one's I new. I don't it. know about I don't know about Anke. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's so many now. Year. Yeah. Um, but I did one of those and I just made sure that I did enough every day to like finish by the date that I wanted to finish by. And it was rough, man. <laughs> like waking up, like the way my schedule was for second year, bro. Like I I would go to bed at 8:30 or 9. I'd get up at 4 or 4:30 a.m. And the first thing I would make my breakfast and then I sit at my desk and watch the sunrise eventually <laughs> uh, and do my cards and do my reviews and just go through them. And then after that, I go through Pathoma, you know, and uh, and shout out Dr. Sitar who actually is at the University of Chicago. So he yeah, talks that's right. our classes. That's tough. Um, but go through Pathoma, like go through first aid. And it was just a process, you know? And uh, for me, I found comfort in creating a, a schedule. So I knew I wanted to stay in the gym, I wanted to stay active. I wanted to stay on my meal plan, all that stuff that was important to me. Mm -hmm. So I just made a schedule so that I didn't have to give those things up. And that also contributed to it being such a hard, intense time because I maintained everything throughout that entire study process. But yeah, Anki, Anki's a lot. um, But you know, for me, I thought I got the job done. And then in third year, I did away with Anki. Um, I, I didn't want it. I think, step two shelf exams etc they do follow more of a logical pattern it's Mm -hmm. a lot more about clinical decision making than it is about you know what are these 60 different things that you need to memorize off top of your head um and I found that it was better for me to just do a lot of questions and really pay attention while I was on the wards uh to do well on the shelf exams and ultimately step two than to like just sit there and go through cards and cards and cards, especially when like third year, your time is not your own. Your time is the residence time, the attendant, whatever they decide, you're allowed to leave, that's when you leave. So it's a lot harder, I think, to carve out that much time for Anki cards. I see, I see.
1: Yeah, it's definitely seemed like a lot of people have their love and hate relationship with Anki. And you said enough with it, third year. <laughs> <I feel that. laughs> 100%.
0: Yeah, it sounds like during those first two years, especially, and then on to the third year, there's a lot of learning, a lot of grinding, learning all the pathology, uh, physiology, and, um, you know, just taking it all in. Um, So I'm curious a little bit, how was the transition going from as life as a medical student um, to going to being a business student at Booth? um, And what was that transition like? And what were some skills that you felt like you really had the opportunity to develop um, during that that, uh, year as a business student?
2: Yeah. So, you know, for me, knowing that I wasn't going to practice, I actually front loaded all of my rotations before starting um, mm. business school. So I did my like my fourth year rotations, all that stuff. Um, the two months leading into my my first year of the business school, and I'm, I'm still technically at Booth now, uh, mm. just because I tried to drag out my classes as long as I could. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was interesting, because, um, you know, when I was in my first, like, Accounting class, econ class, like these are classes that I had never had, right? And at times it was overwhelming, but also I love, I loved then and I love now business school. Like mm-hmm. the environment is incredible and for, for so many reasons. I mean, so stepping away from the academics, because I think the academics in business school, while they were very important to me as a, you know, business illiterate person, if you will, a year ago, they're not really what business school is about. Business school about Business school is about the people, ultimately, and it's about the relationships you make with those people. So mm. you think about it, and my class size in the medical school is 89. 89 people, everybody's from the United States for the most part. It's, it, was, it, it was diverse, I will say. There were 10 Black men in my class at 89, which was wild, uh, and five Black women, so 15 Black students, which was unheard of, uh, particularly at like a top program at that. Mm. But then you go to the business school, and there are 600 students. Wow. And they come from everywhere. People are from, you know, Singapore, Malaysia, you know, the UK, I mean, everywhere. And on top of them coming from such international backgrounds. So too where their previous careers, people did everything. I know, uh, there, there are guys in my class that were Navy SEALs. Mm-hmm. There were people who, you know, worked at Google, uh, Amazon, I mean, just across the board, whether it be people that started their own business, people that are still running to this day, their own businesses. Wow. Um, and I think, you know, I talk a lot about during my gap year, how the lesson was not, I wanted to be this impact investor, you know, I wanted to start investing. The lesson was about, wow, like this world is so much bigger than I ever appreciated in terms of careers available to me. So business school was, and is an amplification of that experience all your classmates came from all these different things. You're like, wait a minute, what, what did you do? Like that's a job, like you did this, you did that. And it's, it, it begins to enlighten and enrich your own perspective on what's available to you. But I think more importantly, and almost more philosophically like that you shouldn't ever really settle for what you wanna do with your life and your career because there's likely a job out there that fits exactly the criteria you want. And if there isn't, you can literally make it. Like, mm. that's the world we live in. You can literally make the job of your dreams if you want. And that's a bit wax poetic and optimistic, but I, I genuinely believe that. And I think business school certainly underpin that perspective. So there's that piece of it. Um, the other side of it was, you know, whether it was the overwhelming process of medical school or the overwhelming process of being pre-med without any of those science classes, I got used to being the guy that didn't know things before starting a program um so for me I was very comfortable being uncomfortable at the beginning of Mm. school I was like yeah accounting I have no idea what this is about but it's fine I I didn't know anything about chemistry and then I got a degree in it um (laughs) and so I felt a lot more confident and honestly that allowed me to learn so much so quickly um and further it's finite it's not like medical school where it's like man like there's so much I mean it's like yeah accounting is a lot you know finance is a lot but there's only so many things you can do. Uh, At the end of the day, I certainly do not know everything and I'm not an expert, but I can perceive that there is a end point. You know, there's only, it it all does fit into a box. It's a massive box, but it's a box. Medicine has no box. Medicine's like a universe. It exists and it it continues to flow, right? Um, And the thing that I appreciated as I began to sort of learn and develop the skills of, you know, economic principles and understanding like how, like how the markets work and how like so much of what happens in our lives is actually based on principles of economics, or the better way to put it is economic principles are based on so much of what happens in our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. And in the same way that, you know, when you're in medical school, right, and you start learning about all the things your pancreas does, or your heart does, you're like, man, that's wild. Like, I was so ignorant about the fact that like my heart was doing all this to like keep me alive. Right. And like you, you start to learn more, right. Business school is like that, except for instead of the body, it's literally the world around you. Mm. I felt like when I was starting in business school, like I was gaining almost like a superpower (laughs) where it's like, wait a minute, like knowledge about the body is one thing. And that was spectacular. And so few people have that, but also knowledge about the economy, business, like how people think about what they do, like what, actual logic is like why like we're using zoom and not something else for this you know podcast like Mm. all of these things like has been thought about and conceptualized and being able to understand that at a at a deeper level I mean it's it's powerful it's incredibly powerful and the last thing that I'll say about this is that while I consider myself to be a highly interpersonal person it's like any skill the more you do it the better you get at it and by being in business school and constantly having to either interact with people, build relationships, interview for opportunities, um, I got really good at communicating generally, but also communicating me and selling me and, and, and doing that understanding myself better, right? Because you can't, you can't sell yourself, you can't communicate who you are until you really have a good handle on exactly who you are is effectively. Uh, and I feel like business school has certainly help that in a lot of ways as well. Oh, wow.
0: That sounds like an <laughs> extremely enriching experience. Not only uh, academically learning something completely different, a whole new topic, but also um, just meeting so many different people from different walks of life. So it sounds like a really enriching experience.
1: I'm, I'm curious to, to see like, so what type of medical student do you think would be ideal for an MBA degree? Like from your experience, what type of student you think would be perfect to do an MBA program, whether it's at Booth or it's anywhere else.
2: Yeah, it's it's a good question, a question I get often. And so I, I'll I'll say three things. the The first thing is I think from the perspective of adding value, medical students have a lot to add to the business school environment. Um, you know, I'm not an MD uh, yet. Um, I have not practiced medicine for years or anything along those lines. Excuse me. What you begin to realize is that the little amount of clinical experience and exposure you have and the learnings you get in medical school is miles away from what the average person or even the the above average person in business school uh, ever knows about. And so I think you provide a very humanistic perspective that is incredibly valuable in business school in general. So from the perspective of, you know, can a, can any medical student add value to the business world or the business school ecosystem, absolutely, hands down. You don't have the, you know, five, six years of working experience that most business school students have, Mm -hmm. but you do have at least three to four years of being intimately involved in human suffering, in the beauty of just people's health and the interface of the healthcare system. And that is a beautiful thing. The, The second thing that I'll say is that I, and this is more of a, um, something to like, I'll say it's like a preamble to the advice I'm about to give, that I as an MD MBA personally have a different perspective on the value of the dual degree MD MBA than others who also have MD MBAs. And partially that's because I am different and that I'm not practicing. And many that do get MD MBAs go on to residency and practice. Um, and so I share all that to just say that, you know, this is my perspective, but this is not everyone's. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I acknowledge the fact that there are other ways to use this degree that I personally see less value in, but some certainly do. So then the third thing is where I see value in it, or rather what type of student would benefit the most. I think when you look at what you get from the MBA, it's two things. It is the network or I really hate that word, network, network, it's too transactional, uh, but the relationships, right? Like the, you know, the the bonds that you get with people. And the second is the, the book knowledge that you get, right? As a medical student, you're learning stuff you've likely never learned before. And then you think about the fact that if after getting both of those things, you go off into a residency, which is anywhere between three to seven years and all encompassing, from the relationship perspective, you're just trying to maintain relationships with your family in residency. You're not going to have time necessarily to, you know, go grab a drink with, you know, your, your friends in business school, right? Like, in rightfully so, residency is an all-encompassing experience that precludes you from doing that. And then from a book knowledge standpoint, in the same way that my medical knowledge deteriorates every year that I'm not practicing medicine or not in the medical space, so too does one's business knowledge, right? The more, used, the more time you spend away from that world and not doing things in it and gaining practical experience, the less valuable that is. It's an appreciating asset, right? The MBA, any degree if not utilizes is a depreciating asset and over time, it will lose its value in terms of the knowledge that you have from it, right? So I share that to say that I think for me, what makes the most sense about folks getting an MD MBA is that if you plan on practicing, I would almost encourage folks to do it in residency, There are residency programs that have a lot of times for a secondary degree. Uh, Some residency programs, like many of the ones at University of Chicago have affiliations with Booth. And Mm -hmm. I know Mm -hmm. there are residents in my class and the class ahead of me and below me who have opted to do that. Um, Further, I think there's a lot of value in getting an MBA post residency. So there are some former attendings, uh, one, one who, and this is odd to say, but one who is a mentee of mine Uh, was a practicing attending for three to four years, but wanted to get involved in sort of the space that I'm in. So I serve as a mentor to him. Um, And I think those two options make more sense to me if you're going to practice um, than doing it in the middle of medical school. Because for example, the attending gentleman that I mentioned, once he graduates, he will immediately use that dual degree. He will have those relationships. He'll be able to maintain those relationships and he'll have that knowledge and immediately be able to use it. Resident, very similar. You know, maybe you've got two two more years or whatever residency, but you can definitely use that knowledge very quickly. Um, and further, you can even make like one of the residents I know of. She's a surgical resident. Uh, she's improved her residency program based on the principles that she learned in business school. Oh, so wow. there are a lot of translatable things that make it super beneficial to get it later. And so that's why I'm an outlier in this way, but still a proponent of. Doing it later than medical school if you're gonna practice. That being said, for the sake of for the sake of being complete, I will share the other perspective, which is that, you know, we need people that are more business minded throughout the entire process of medical school and onward through medical training. And, you know, residency, the match system is wild. You may not go to a place that you have the opportunity to do an MBA. And if your medical school is affiliated with a great business school, this might be your shot. This might be your best shot at getting a great mba and i think there are certainly ways to leverage an mba without or rather with practicing healthcare is wildly inefficient and we need people with business acumen actually in clinical medicine to provide value um and i know people that have done that i i personally however have a hard time advocating for that because i do think it's a bit contradictory to what the mba provides
1: nice mm-hmm. And that's interesting because I've never really heard the perspective that you gave the first one about, you know, getting it later to benefit and leverage the network. And that's, you made some solid
0: points there. And I definitely, I see what you're saying for sure. So you mentioned earlier um, that after you graduate um, next year, uh, you'll be taking on a role with Oak Tree Health, I believe you said. Oak
2: Uh, Street,
0: Oak Street Health. Oak Street Health. So I was wondering if you could touch a little bit more on like what your role will be, um, and also how you plan on using your, your MD, MBA in that role. Uh, and then further, what, uh, impact do you plan on making, uh, overall based on your personal background and your, your different experiences? Um, what, what type of impact you hope to, to make on the healthcare field?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, first to explain sort of, so, the second question about how I plan on leveraging my MBA was actually what really guided my full-time recruitment search this year. Mm-hmm. So over the past year and a half, almost two years, I've worked with or interned with three different private equity firms. And for those who don't know, private equity is just a means of investing in companies. Healthcare private equity specifically is a means of investing in healthcare companies. Be a little more specific about this. There are three parties to keep in mind for private equity. There is the company that people are going to invest in and buy. There is the private equity firm that effectively buys the healthcare companies. And then there's something called a limited partner. Okay. So limited partner is sort of the beginning of where the money comes from. These are pension funds, right? So, you know, if you have like the state of Illinois, Uh, teachers, they have a pension fund, so they can like pay out retirement for people that retire from teaching, right? Or like hospital systems will have pension funds for everybody that works for their hospital, okay? So these types of uh, limited partners, they have all this pool of money that comes from their employees' paychecks, right? So a percentage of their paycheck goes to their pension funds so that when they retire, that's how they get paid while they're retiring and not working, right? Mm -hmm. So as, a, as an LP, as a limited partner, as this, you know, uh, call it this hospital systems pension plan, the way they manage this money, if you just let the money sit, you're not allowing it to achieve its true value. Because without going into too much detail here, like money is time sensitive, meaning that a dollar today is worth less than a dollar tomorrow. And so you want to make sure that you are able to invest a dollar today so you can get interest and it increases in value so that it's worth more, Mm -hmm. um, you know, tomorrow, right? Um, So you got to make sure you're doing that. So in essence, they can't just let the money sit there because that money will lose its value over time if they're not investing it appropriately. Mm -hmm. So the limited partners then go to the private equity firms and say, hey, we're going to cut you a check for $30 million invest that money into companies so you can buy a company and build it, make it better, make it, you know, really appealing and then sell it for more than you bought it for in the first place. Mm. And that profit that you got from selling that, we're going to get a cut of it and you're going to get a cut of it because you're the one that found the company, bought it, made it better, etc. Right? right. So that's the private equity process. It goes from limited partner giving money to the private equity firm, private equity firm, buying a company. It's hopefully relatively Cheap. They make it better. They, you know, hire a better CEO. They hire, you know, more talent. They expand. If it's only in Georgia, they expand it to, you know, Illinois and North Carolina, whatever. And then five years from now, they sell it for more than what they bought it for, and they get a profit. And that's how it goes, right? right. In healthcare, this is super helpful because you're buying companies that are already doing really special things for healthcare. Whether that's like a telemedicine company that's trying to make sure that telemedicine is available to, you know, every hospital system in the United States. Yeah. So private equity firm might buy this company and say, all right, like we're only in Georgia and Illinois. We want to get to all 50 States. So let's find out how we can do that. And then, you know, there's a bunch of more business complicated stuff that happens to do that, Right. Right. That's what I was pursuing initially, but ultimately I realized that in that process, it was a lot of finance. So a lot of the MBA, not a lot of my MD, my mm. MD really wasn't going to be leveraged that much. I mean, After a year or so of working in that space, I would have really just been more of a finance person and not somebody that was leveraging the fact that like, I understand what happens clinically or I understand the patient experience. So this past summer, I had an interesting role where I was with a private equity firm, but I was able to do the investing side, the part I just described and something called operations. What operations just means is you are working with the company to improve and accomplish their goals. So before I mentioned, I, you know, I've been mentioning this whole like geographic growth thing. So say a goal of a company is we're in two states now, we wanna to get to 10 states by the end of the year. So mm-hmm. the operator's role is to say, okay, how do we build out this company to have locations in these other eight states, right? And that's just one example, but there's a lot of things that happen on the day-to-day running of the business that is the operator. So like a CEO of a company is an operator effectively, okay? And so, in that role over the summer, I really liked. I worked. I worked with an ophthalmology practice. Really liked working with the CEO. I really liked working with the employees. Really liked directly impacting patient experiences by making certain processes more efficient. And Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, like this is a good use of my MD and my MBA. So, going to my final year, I was looking more for looking more for roles like that, and less for roles that were just going to be investors, finance, crunching the numbers, things along those lines. Sure. And that's when I came. Well, I'd already come across Oak Street, you know, two years ago, because there are a lot of Booth and you Chicago people at Oak Street. Um, and so Oak Street is special. It was so ultimately I landed with about had yeah, four or five job offers, but I decided on Oak Street. And the reason being is they build and run clinics with doctors they, like doctors work with them that are entirely based on two things. One, value based care. So I don't know how familiar you guys are with value based care, but there are two types of, well, two broad strokes ways of reimbursing for um, like medical care. One is fee for service, which just means every time you go to a doctor and you get a procedure, you pay a certain amount. So you get a fee for the service, right? Mm-hmm. The other is called value-based care, which just means that instead of getting paid solely on the service you're providing, you're actually getting paid on how healthy your patients are. Mm-hmm. So if you healthier patients, you get compensated more. This is largely through Medicare, uh, Medicare and Medicaid, which is a government-run, um, you know, reimbursement process for healthcare. Okay, and so it's it's value-based care is relatively new, but it is becoming the wave of the future because it's actually cheaper than all the other forms of reimbursement. Right? You're not going to order that test if you know it's not going to make your patient healthier, because you're only going to be reimbursed by making sure your patients are healthier, not by making sure they get that service that you would get a fee for. Oak Street's based on value-based care, so really making sure that, you know, instead of spending 10 to 15 minutes with patients, they're spending 30, 40 minutes with their primary care-based patients, really understanding them, really making sure we're addressing all the issues that impact their health, whether that's transportation, access to quality foods, all these things, exercise, et cetera, right? The second thing about Oak Street Health that's a part of their mission is they're only focused on communities that are underrepresented minority and generally poor. Mm. So we're talking about, you know, they were they started in the South side of Chicago, right? Now they're in, you know, New York and Texas and California and all these other markets, but all of them are very similar to the South side of Chicago, relatively poor, usually a lot of minorities and people that honestly aren't really focused on by the healthcare system. Mm. High rates of obesity, high rates of diabetes, high rates of heart failure, high rates of you know COPD—all these chronic ailments that are preventable if you have doctors or medical staff that are wholly invested in your entire care—and that's what Oak Street's about. Um, so you know it, it's one of those companies where they do they do good and they do well at the same time, and that's a rarity. So for me, I'll be a director of population health. I'll be working in New York. (laughs) Thanks. I'll be working in New York, and uh, my role will be effectively ownership over one of the company's initiatives. So, for example, one of the initiatives they're looking into now is telehealth. So they're thinking, okay, how can we make sure that all of our clinics and all of our patients have telehealth capabilities? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard because technology in you know poor areas. Tends to not be that great, you know. Mm-hmm. Not everybody has a smartphone. Not everybody has a Access to computer. care. Exactly, exactly. So you know, one of the initiatives. Okay, how do we provide this to our patients in a way that's cost sustainable, right? Because mm-hmm. we still it's still a business, right? Um, but at the same time, effectual and making sure that we can provide good care, get reimbursement, and do very well. And so far, the company's done incredibly well. And you know, I, I'm excited. I think to run one of those initiatives because I would help think about how it makes sense. I'd roll it out in the clinics that exist in a given area, say, you know, New York metropolitan area, mm-hmm. and then we'd see how it goes. You know, I'd talk to my doctors, the nurses, everybody that's there and see, okay, what do we need to do differently? How do we make these adjustments? Analyze the data to make sure that we're thinking about it right. Um, and I'm very excited. You know, I, I, don't, you know I, I think my career will definitely take a couple of steps, um, but I'm very excited for this first step, for sure.
0: Wow. That's amazing, man. I'm so excited for you. It sounds like a, a perfect opportunity, um, kind of blending together your, your different interests. So uh, I'm really looking forward to see where you take that.
2: Thank you, man. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, it meshes so well. It just Everything just came together. So good.
2: It did, man. That's uh, both a combination of the serendipity and, and fortune part, man. Um, and, you know, I think one other thing I'll say about it is just the fact that, like, my whole process throughout this whole career experience from the gap year onward has been iterative. You know, what I thought was going to be impact investing. I spent time thinking and doing that kind of stuff. Grew to venture capital, which then grew to private equity. And now is, you know, more of a operations role at, you know, what is a very up and coming healthcare company. Um, and if there's anything that I can encourage people to do pre-med or not, uh, med school or not, is to really embrace embrace that process of allowing yourself to just, continue to search for what you want, um, because it's very likely that if you continue to push for that, you'll find it.
1: I know you mentioned um, that you kind of benefited from networking and how you've kind of built your interpersonal skills over the years and found different opportunities. I was wondering if you could offer any advice to medical students, pre-med students on networking and how they could, you know, up their skills with that aspect of things.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, admittedly, networking, I think, is very different in the medical world than in the business world. You know, in the business world, I mean, so much of the opportunities I've had available to me are a product, purely a product of, like, making relationships with people. It's, it's been wild in that way. Mm-hmm. Medical school isn't quite like that, because, you know, at the end of the day, you do have residency, you do have these sort of streamlined programs, that's sort of less about who you know. That being said, I think one aspect of medical school that's largely based on networking or building relationships is mentorship Um, and I would say for me uh, or rather the advice that I give about how to approach that is in medical school when you're surrounded by other medical students when you're surrounded by other doctors or whomever there are going to be times when you see people that either you really resonate with or you really aspire to be like and what I encourage people to do always and this is just Literally, this applies beyond just medical school is to seek those people out with reckless abandon, like just not being afraid to send that email, to tap on the shoulder, to have that conversation. Um, because when I look back at my life, well before medical school, well before undergrad, I'm a product of mentorship. And, you know, sometimes I've been fortunate enough for that mentorship to just fall in my lap. But other times I had to go find it. You know, when I, when I started with the business school stuff, like I, I had to email people, one of my best mentors now in the business school side was somebody who I had heard was very involved in private equity and that I should talk to. So I cold emailed him. I called me, emailed you know, the three people that I, ther- that I heard were like that. And two out of the three are some of my closest mentors a year later. Mm. Um, they have given me so much career advice and life advice. It's crazy. And so I think that also applies in the medical school, you know, find people that you know are either further along in a path that you want to be on, or like you have similar, um, you know, qualities or goals or uh, values that you have, and attach to those people, build those relationships, uh, and do it normally. You know, I mean, I think in terms of like tips and tricks, I mean, I think if you get too caught up on how to game the system of networking, then it doesn't work particularly well i think in the same way that you know while this is a much more one-way conversation (laughs) but in the same way that you will either the three of us are having a conversation now that's the exact same way you should approach networking it's a conversation uh talk listen um and ultimately i think you'll you'll walk away having built strong relationships for it
1: i know oftentimes people struggle with maintaining those networks like it's one thing to start one but I know you say it's not really, you know, tips and tricks you can really do because you want to build it organically. But is there a certain like way to maintain it in an organic way per
2: se? Like, I don't know. I'm, you know. I'm trying to. Yeah, no, no, no. I hear you. I hear you. I mean, I think maintenance is one of the hardest things. And so I, two things come to mind. I think one, there's almost a self-selection process to your network in that, I mean, look, man, if you can't find a reason to reach out to that person and talk to them, like that's probably an indication that maybe they're not a great fit for your network, right? Mm. And that's kind of how I've approached it because there have certainly been mentors that had only a season in my life. And they reached a certain point where it's like, all right, like, you know, I'll wake up and I realize I haven't spoken to so-and-so in a long time. And then I think about, well, what do I have to talk about with so-and-so? And and that's okay. Um, The second thing I think is, In terms of maintaining those mentorship or like network relationships with those people that do fit in your network, I think a lot of it has to do with being very curious. You know, like I think it's really good to ask people questions and to not fear how personal those questions get. Um, And so I think, you know, once you ask enough questions to really learn about a person, it's really easy to, you know, reach out and talk. I mean, for example, right, I haven't spoken to either of you guys in a while, but you've asked enough questions to know, okay he's going to get an MBA, he's going down this path. So when it does come for a time where it makes sense for us to reconnect, we're able to, right? And then the other thing, and I'll actually share this with you guys, because I think this is a really good quote that I, I heard the other day in um, a podcast that I think is very simple, or very, very related to this. It's, a uh, more specificity leads to greater, greater generalizations. Mm-hmm. So more specificity leads to greater generalizations. And so how this relates to this is the more specific you are in your questions, the more specific you are in how you respond to things, the more likely you are to have a generalization, meaning people are going to relate to what you have to say. And you're gonna attract the right people by being as specific as possible. And I think that that is the way you maintain relationships Mm -hmm. is really get to know and allow people to get to know you simultaneously. And then it'll flow, and if that means you know you email them, I mean sometimes I've got alarms on my calendars to email people every six months, and if I haven't talked to them in six months, I know I definitely have that alarm to so, say okay, email so and so, and make it as structured as possible.
0: Love it,
2: love it. Wow, and then
0: and then kind of going off of that, um, how has it been managing uh, your social life and extra, extracurriculars, and other things you're involved in, while being a medical student and busy uh, business student?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, COVID makes it a little bit different.
0: Um, (laughs) Right, right. But,
2: you know, I think in a pre-COVID world, uh, medical school and business school were two very different worlds. And, you know, this next quarter is my last. I graduate a quarter early. And right now, this is like one of my one quarters where, thanks, man. (laughs) This is one of my one quarters where it's uh, it's sort of a mix of both, kind of, but not really. Um, But they were very different. I think in medical school, it was a lot harder, especially... uh, especially during like second year with step one to like be as social. And I think that's just the time to really buckle down and just get your work done. And that's just kind of what it is. I think what you end up gaining from step two studying is actually incredibly helpful throughout the rest of your medical school process. And I think you do yourself a justice by solely dedicating yourself to that mission for that time. Um, But in my third year and my first year, you know, I think I really, So one of the things I did was I moved from Hyde Park, which is where uh, University of Chicago is, kind of removed from like the greater city of Chicago by a little bit, more of a university town. And I moved to downtown, which is like in the heart of the city. Moved there with two of my classmates. And that really did allow me to create a certain balance because I could step outside and, you know, there was the Bean. There was, you know, Sears Tower. Like everything was right there. And it always gave me a perspective of, whatever I got going on in my little microcosm that is medical school, there's a whole other world happening around me. Um, and that was incredibly helpful. I think first year, I was much more involved in extracurriculars. I was on like the, was it, like student council and a few other things there, mentoring programs. Second year was much more about studying for step two, or step one, excuse me. And then my third year, third year I think does open up more opportunities to be more flexible with your time to some Mm -hmm. extent, because it's like a job. You don't necessarily control when you come in and when you get to leave, but in some ways it's very much like a job and you do have opportunities to do other things. It just requires a lot of intentionality. You have to decide, okay, I'm going to make sure I have time to go, you know, spend time with my friends or, you know, to go to the gym, whatever it might be. Business school, man, business school is a ride. Like (laughs) it's so (laughs) much of it is based on being social. I mean, before COVID, like they were, my schedule was packed with social things. What was harder was to find time to study, because there were, (laughs) you know, networking events and conferences and all these different things. Um, And it was wonderful, you know, and even now, I think we do our best keeping things virtual and COVID friendly when possible. But there's still, I think, a lot of opportunities to build relationships. And that's, that's been great. So yeah, maintaining a social life in business school is easy. I think maintaining the life of a student is probably what's harder in business school.
0: (laughs) All right. So uh, since you, since you brought it up about COVID um, I saw that you recently actually received your first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, so could you touch a little bit on your experience with it? And then also why you wanted to share um, that experience and,
2: and your, your feelings about it uh, with your followers? I saw your Instagram story. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm smiling because yeah, there was, uh, it was one of the first times that I made like a whole like, I make, I do Instagram stories relatively frequently, but like, none that are like, informational in the way that that was. <laughs> so that was a bit different from me. So, yeah. So like you said, I got the COVID vaccine. And so the reason why I made the video was because of what happened when I found that I was eligible. So got an email from my school and they said, Hey, look, you know, third and fourth year medical students are eligible to get the vaccine. And I'm like, "Er, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, (laughs) it, it was less about like, Oh, the vaccine, I'm scared. Like I felt comfortable about the science. I think, you know, we are privileged being in the healthcare space and having that science and healthcare literacy Mm. to understand things that the average public that hasn't gone through the studies and the things that we have can understand. So I felt, I didn't really feel worried about that. It was more just like, I'm not seeing patients now. I will never see a patient again. And so do I really, should I be getting a shot just so that I can sit home? You know, like, I mean that, that, that feels wrong when I know there are people that are actually taking care of patients. And so I reached out to one of my, one of my mentors, and I think you might've met her, Cameron, actually, uh, Dr. Monica Vela. Mm, um, yes. Amazing, amazing woman. She uh, is a primary care doctor at University of Chicago, um, is also the, I believe she's the dean of multicultural affairs, but her title, she's always doing amazing things. So it's probably more than that at this point, who knows? Um, and she's just been an amazing mentor. So I reached out to her and I said, hey, you know, Dr. Vela, I'm a little bit conflicted about getting this. Like, what are your thoughts? And she was like, look, um, end of the day, you're not taking the vaccine from anybody, anybody else because U of C has allocated the number of vaccines they have to this population for right now. And if you don't take it, it's not going to anyone else. It just won't be used. That's effectively how it's being stored at this point. Yeah. And then she said, look, you be a... Instagram, whatever, whatever, like you can, you are a role model, which mm-hmm. is weird for me to say, but that's what she said. And through that platform, you have the opportunity to serve as a role model to communities that are rightfully so very suspicious about this vaccine. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, you know, the Tuskegee experiments, you know, what happened with Henrietta Lacks. I mean, the, the list of, of medical atrocities that have happened to the black community specifically, but several communities in the name of science and healthcare is unavoidable it's a reality and so i completely understand why people are suspicious and you add Absolutely. on to that the the speed the expeditious nature of how this was taken care of now mind you again somebody who's more familiar with the process can appreciate usually they're looking at a plethora of different drugs at any point in time usually there's a whole bureaucratic process that unnecessarily slows things down. All of that was put to the wayside. Not only that, but a whole bunch of money was sent in this direction. You add money, time and focus, you can get a lot of things done very, very quickly. Right. That's exactly what happened here. Okay. So when she posited it that I could use this as an opportunity to do something good with it, uh, and to, you know, to make a statement and to help people because eventually you know, we need 70, 80% of the entire population in the United States to take this thing in order for us to get back to something that looks like normal. Um, I decided that was something that I want to be a part of. So I made the story, I posted the story on my Instagram that's still there and available such that um, it is helpful. That it does something good. And, you know, while I will never treat a patient again in a clinical setting, I think that might be one of the best uses of my MDs to help people that I'll likely have, um, you know, in the rest of my medical school career. Um, So that was my decision to take it, my decision to document it. And, you know, I'm hopeful that it, it does have a positive impact on people.
0: Absolutely. Um, and that's great that you thought to reach out to your mentor and and get that advice instead of just, you know, making a quick decision to take it or to not to take it. Um, and and like you said, I, I think that um, she made a great point and that you can be that liaison um, to a community um, to to get them to more educated about the vaccine and, and more comfortable with it. So I think that's awesome.
1: It's definitely needed because. It's social media right now, so many different posts and propagandas, memes, and everything is going around circulating, and the people is just enforcing that negative you know, mindset about the vaccine. And so having a positive post out there for people to watch and view definitely helps combat that a little bit. So I definitely think that was good on your part. Absolutely. Yeah. So... Najeeb, this was an excellent, excellent interview, excellent conversation. I learned so much and I've like gained so much insight on in the business side of things and got me going back to going to Google. I'm going to do my searches and continue to it. find and refine what I want to do for my career path. Love but it. in a post-COVID world, uh, once we're all said and done, hopefully you get back to some normalcy next year. Um, what is one fun thing that you would like to do or a place where you would like to go before you hit the job, that official job?
2: Yeah. Oh man, that's hard. I'll tell you what came to my mind instantaneously. And then I'll tell you the second thing that came out. First thing that came to my mind is uh, I want to go to a live show, like a live musical concert. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's just such a special experience. It, man, it doesn't even have to be a big concert. It could be like in a, there's a, there's a really nice, like uh, music venue in a bar here in Chicago that always have like dope musical artists, like usually up and coming in Chicago. Excuse me. And the aesthetic was beautiful. Like I, I'd love to just be able to go to a place like that again <laughs> yeah. that'd be great so that's the first thing the second thing though is my goal always after graduating from all this you know mdmba stuff was to go to both the countries of my my parents so mm. i've never been to morocco i've never been to haiti and so hopefully we'll see what ends up happening before august I'll at least make it out to morocco uh and then hopefully haiti as well uh my mom actually just retired and moved down to mexico which is a longer story, but very happy for her. She loves it down there and brags about the warm weather every day. <laughs> um, and so I'll probably make my way down to Mexico at some point uh, in the near future as well. So yeah, I'd say concerts and definitely some some traveling for sure.
0: That's awesome. You, well, you definitely deserve it after uh, all these years of hard work and uh, and grinding. So I, I hope you're able it. to make that happen. Um, but definitely. thank you so much, man, for coming on the podcast. It's an extremely insightful conversation um just kind of hearing your path as well as your insight on, on the business side of things as well as your aspirations and how you you plan on making an impact moving forward so um i hope those listening can take a lot out of this and i, I know they will so thank you for taking some time to come on
2: absolutely no guys look it was a pleasure i'm uh, i'm proud of both of you guys and you know incredibly proud of what you're doing with this uh with this podcast and your careers as well so you know we'll keep in touch man we'll keep in for touch for sure for sure
0: Thank you so much to Najib for taking time out of his schedule to speak with us. We definitely learned so much about the MBA life and and balancing the MD and the MBA about business. And it was a really great conversation. I loved it. As always, believe in yourself and remember your future patients
1: are counting on you.